I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second season of Flight Deck, the place for information and insight on the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Slamini. This is my 32nd year covering the Jets, which Adam Gase likes to remind me of every now and then. But, you know, I've been asked many times, why have you done it this long? And don't you get tired of covering the same team? And my answer is, it doesn't feel like the same team. You know, the coaches change, the players change, storylines change. So each season is new. It's a new storyline, a new beginning, and that keeps it fresh. And there's no doubt about the uniqueness of this season. Football in a pandemic, which brings us a new set of challenges for us, especially in the media. There'll be no locker room access, no face-to-face interviews. This is the season of Zoom. But hey... I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. We're going to roll with the punches and bring you the best Jets content and analysis we possibly can. And we'll have special guests along the way. You know, when you cover a team for 30 years, you're going to have some pretty good names in your Rolodex. And so I'll uh, definitely reach into that to try to bring some of the best guests I possibly can. I don't even know if anyone uses a Rolodex anymore. Is, Is that even a thing? But anyway, enough of that. Let's dive into the 2020 Jets. Uh, Newsflash, this is not a talented team. Only two players have gone to Pro Bowls on this team. That's Le'Veon Bell and Frank Gore. And uh, no player on this team made the ESPN Top 100. So I think you get the picture. Uh, But let's take a look at this team and look at the strengths and weaknesses. And let's start with the strengths. And I think the offensive line is going to be pretty solid in time. I think cohesiveness is not going to happen overnight. And, you know, the Jets are planning to run a zone-heavy scheme, and that takes reps. This Mekhi Becton, he's got a chance. I think he's got a chance to be pretty good. He gets it. Everything I've heard about him is that he works hard, acts professionally. He didn't miss a practice in camp. I don't think he missed a rep. You know, he had a little bit of a rough patch in the middle when he got thrown off by some exotic schemes. But he settled down, and I think he's ready to go this season. Uh, They're solid at running back with Le'Veon Bell and Frank Gore. If I'm Adam Gase, I'm going to be a run-first team. Run the ball, shorten the game, give Sam Darnold a chance to make some play-action throws, then gradually open things up as Darnold builds chemistry with his wide receivers, which is not going to happen overnight. Um, You know, I think they have to... uh, you know, they don't have 
a perimeter threat. You know, they don't have a perimeter threat in the running game, and that's that's not a great thing, at least not until uh, LaMichael Pirine gets ready to go and in the rotation. I think he's got that ability, but I don't think it's going to be a, a week one thing for him. So it's hard to operate a ground game between the tackles, but I still think they have to operate that way until this rest of this offense gets up to speed. Another strength is the tight end position, specifically Chris Herndon. Gase loves him. He has uh, he has a great chemistry with Sam Darnold, first of all. The question is, will Gase feature him? Over the last four years, no offense has had fewer tight end receptions than an Adam Gase offense. So that has to change, obviously. The defensive line is a strength. This should be a top 10 run defense. Everybody wants to know about Quinnen Williams. Is he going to break out this year? I'll be honest. Frankly, I did not see it in training camp. Didn't see anything special. Uh, I don't think it's time to worry yet, but let's. Uh, this definitely is a situation we should monitor closely. Okay, let's talk about the weaknesses. Covering people won't be easy for this defense. Uh, this is not a great cornerback group, and the linebackers don't cover well. They're not going to get much help from the pass rush because that remains an issue. So I think you're going to see a lot of uh, mixing and matching for Greg Williams, a lot of zone from Greg Williams. They played a lot of cover two last year. I don't know if people realize that, but they were right around the middle of the league in terms of how many snaps they played cover two. I think they're going to do it again to try to protect these corners. On offense, there's not enough playmakers on the perimeter. Brashad Perryman is not a consistent player. And if you check his history, you'll see that he always gets off to slow starts. It takes him a while to grasp a new offense. So don't expect him to come out like gangbusters. I like Denzel Mims' potential, but he missed a lot of time in training camp. So I think they have to bring him along slowly, start him off with a small package of plays. Jamison Crowder is good in the slot. So I think the Crowder-Herndon tandem gives them a nice middle-of-the-field threat, double threat in the middle. Anything outside the perimeter, though, is going to be really tough. Anything they get out of Chris Hogan is a bonus. You know, he's a smart player, but based on what I saw in camp, he's going to have trouble separating from DBs. I think Darnold will be a better quarterback this year. He didn't have a great camp, but I wouldn't pay too much attention to that. He's thinking faster, playing faster. I think he, uh, you know, look, Adam Gase runs a complex offense, and I've talked to people who told me that it's almost impossible for a quarterback to master that in the first year, especially a young quarterback. But now this is Darnold's second year in the system, and I think Gase learned a little something about him last year too. I think Gase overloaded Sam last year, and when he scaled it back about midseason, you saw Darnold's play pick up. So I think they'll try to build off that momentum. Uh, no, Darnold does not have a great supporting cast. But if he is who they think he is, you know, he should be able to raise the level of those around him. So let's get to it. My prediction this year, you may not like it. You may not agree with it, but um, it's coming from the heart here. I think the Jets have a 6-10 and 10 team uh, to be better they absolutely have to split the first four games, but I'm going to 6-10 and 10 right now. It all starts Sunday against the Bills in Orchard Park. I'm excited to introduce our first guest of the season. Every Jets fan knows him, of course. 
And now he's a national radio star as part of the Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin show on ESPN Radio in the mornings uh, across the country, and especially 98.7 in New York. That's a little local plug there at 6 a.m. Thanks so much, Keyshawn, for joining me today. No problem, Rich. I'm always available whenever you need me. You know that. I know. E- you even, pro- even, though, even though you wasn't one of my f- favorite beat writers when I played for the Jets. I know. I know. We had some rocky times back in the day. I mean, things, things got a little crazy. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, like, memorable for sure. I mean, a lot of stuff. <laughs> 24 years ago, your, your rookie year. I mean, it just – I know. I know. And, I, and, and the funny thing is I'm back in New York uh, where it all started. And, and I was telling my wife uh, as we were flying here uh, some time ago, you know, I'm going back to where it all started. And this is where, you know, the month that I came to camp and all of those sort of things. So it's just funny. Yeah. Well, you gave us a lot to write about in those days because when you, you came to camp late because it was a very – kind of a nasty holdout that went on there, you know, back in the day before they had like all these rookie slotted contracts, you know, guys could actually hold out in those days. And, uh, you know, so it got off to a shaky start and, and then you, you guys lost the first, actually that was a horrible year. It was one. Yeah, we were one in 15. You know, what was, I mean, you went like from one in 15 when you first got to New York coming within a few minutes of the Super Bowl in 98 which was more crushing, like coming that close to the Super Bowl in 98 or going through the 1-15 in 15 ordeal? Uh, coming close to the Super Bowl in 98 because I knew that the season would change for the better in, in once we got Parcells. So mm. I wasn't really – 1-15 in 15 wasn't going to be forever. Coaches get fired all the time, but you don't go to NFC championship games – I mean, AFC championship games all the time. So – we were right there, and I remember Bill saying, you know, make this memorable. Make this these playoffs the, the, the best you've ever played because you don't get to do this all the time. Yeah, it was so close against Denver. And I, I honestly think, and I've talked to so many players, they feel that you guys would have won the Super Bowl because you had you would kicked Atlanta's ass during the season and, and might have done the same in the Super Bowl. So I'm sure that doesn't make you feel any better. But, uh, no, it doesn't. But I understand. <laughs> as, as we as we learned that Atlanta had just beaten Minnesota, you know, first thing in in my mind is like, oh, I'm getting ready to go to Super Bowl, Super yeah. Bowl bound, Keyshawn Johnson. You know, I was all ready to go, and <sighs> look what happened. Yeah, a windy day in Denver, and you know, and things started going a little haywire in the fourth quarter, and. But, uh, hey, it was a good run in New York. I mean, to go from 1-15 and, and uh, you know, I mean, that was – I can't even imagine what that must have been like playing through. Because you come from a winning program, you know, you're a winner, and then you walk into the mess that was the Rich Kotite era. What was that like? It was, it was wild. I couldn't believe – you know, Kotite was a nice guy, but I couldn't believe he was a head coach in the National Football League. Like, I'm like, this is what a – this is a head coach, this type of – behavior I mean it was just it was wild it was one of those deals where it's just like he's standing there on practice field I remember like it was yesterday on a cell phone doing the middle of practice not not taking a call because he was learning about an injury or learning about a player that was coming in for a workout he took a call he was like communicating with people for like minutes at a time and you were like 
what the hell was he doing smoking a cigar at practice? Yeah. He might have been booking his tea time for later that day, I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is, what, is what we came to find out. Uh, but, you know, it was a strange time. But, you know, you know, you had some really good years with the Jets. You get traded to Tampa. And uh, 11 years, more than 800 catches, more than 10,000 yards receiving, 64 touchdowns, a Super Bowl championship in Tampa. And, you know, I was looking this up the other day. You never really played with a Pro Bowl quarterback. Other than Vinny, the one year, you played with kind of a mediocre group of quarterbacks throughout your entire career. I mean, my best two QBs were Vinny Testaverde and Brad Johnson, who had gone to the Pro Bowl and won the Super Bowl with me. Those were my two best quarterbacks. Ray Lucas had about six good games, uh, which, you know, was, was really great. Other than that, you know, Glenn Foley had some potential, uh, didn't work out. Um, Rick Meyer, you know, Tom Tupa was a backup. Yeah. Uh, you know, Neil O'Donnell just never amounted to much here in New York after playing in the Super Bowl and getting a bunch of money from the Jets as a savior. Right. Um, yeah, I never really, you know, Drew Bledsoe in the end of his career. He was on the, as they say in golf, on the back nine. Right. Um, you know, Drew Henson was young, didn't know how to play, didn't play with Tony Romo because he wasn't active. Uh, Sean King was a shell of himself from when they first made him the starter. Uh, who else? Uh, God, man, I had a litany. Chris Winkie, Jake DeLone was a, you know, Jake DeLone was we the third one. best quarterback. He's the third best guy I probably had. Yeah. Um, Chris Winkie. I mean, I, I – no, I, I got the I got the bad end of the stick on the on the quarterback carousel. Only one starting quarterback that you played with had a higher than a ninety-five rating in, in a season, and that was of course Vinny in ninety-eight when he had a one oh one. And uh but of course taking nothing away from Brad Johnson, who, you know, was a Super Bowl winner, so you gotta give him give him props. Yeah, no, Brad Brad was Brad was fire. I love Brad. Brad was like I said, Brad was the guy. He got me the ball, he knew what to do. Uh, you know, if I had played with Brad my entire career, Vinny my entire career, I can only imagine what I would have been able to accomplish. And I accomplished a lot. Uh, you know, being able to go to three Pro Bowls, win a Super Bowl, be an important piece to winning the Super Bowl, not just a guy on the team. And I know a lot of people get it twisted because our defense was so dominant. They just feel like our defense was the reason we won the Super Bowl. No, our offense was explosive during the playoffs. Yeah. Um, you know, in that year, I, I don't know, I caught, I don't know, 80 balls, 70-something balls, you know, 1,100 yards, a number of touchdowns. So I tell people all the time, no, don't, don't just look at it as, you know, my defense because, you know, we were contributors on the offensive side of the ball. No doubt. I mean, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he was an offensive-minded head coach, so, of course, it was going to be, a, a, you know, an offensive, you know, geared game plan and – uh, that was a great team. I mean, that was a really, really good team. You know, I was thinking about you recently, you know, in July. So when the Jets traded Jamal Adams, it reminded me a lot of your situation because, you know, you're talking about two highly drafted players who fulfilled expectations, you know, who are confident, brash players, not afraid to express themselves, uh, who wanted a new contract, you know, neither of 
whom got it with the team they were drafted by, and he gets traded in a very controversial fashion. And you went through pretty much the same thing. What, from your, from a player perspective, what was your take on the Jamal situation? You know, I thought it was it was interesting. Uh, I thought that the Jets certainly don't want to pay a safety that type of money, and I don't believe that a safety without a bunch of other defensive players around them can win a Super Bowl solely by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, when you look at it, he's a difference maker, no question about it, a hell of a football player. Um, but if they draft well and get the right type of pick players with those picks, then they got the best of the trade. Mm-hmm. And if not, then they got the worst of the trade. And so it's still an open-ended situation in terms of what happens in the future with the Jets, with the guys that they selected. Yeah. Is it going to be good players? Is it going to be marginal players? Like what, what are the players going to turn out to be? When I look at what they got for me and what they drafted, if they satisfy with getting players that, you know, may have taken them to a playoff game or two, and that was pretty much it when they gave up the franchise wide receiver, then, you know, so be it. I, I look at it and say, I don't think they got the best of the trade. I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers got the best of the trade because the Bucs coveted a wide receiver to help them get over the hump to win the Super Bowl. Right. And guess what? We got over the hump and we won the Super Bowl where – you can't say the same for the players that they drafted. They had good careers, but did, yeah. they, did they accomplish what they set out when they made the trade? You know, I, I wouldn't have went anywhere, Rich. If they would have came to me and Bill would have came to me and Bill would have said, we don't want to address the issue this year, but we're certainly going to, as soon as the season is over, mm-hmm. we're going to make you the highest paid wide receiver in the game. And look at me square in my eyes, I would have stayed. With no problem at all. But that conversation never came up. And because the conversation never came up, it was just like, okay, well, trade me. I don't care. I I want my money. Mm -hmm. And that's the bottom line. Right. They got, uh, just for the record to the fans, I mean, John Abraham and Anthony Becht were the two players the Jets got with the uh, first-round picks there. Um, You know, John turned out to be many, many Pro Bowls, not all with the Jets, because that was another contract situation that – that went awry for the Jets, uh, but turned out to be a very good player. And Anthony was a solid tight end, you know, never made the Pro Bowl or anything. But social media. But again, though, I was going to say, but again, if they're happy with that, then it worked out for them. If the yeah. Jets are genuinely happy, then it worked out for them. But if they're not happy and they felt that they could have won championships with me, then it's a bad trade. Yeah, I think the same thing with, happened with Jamal. They said, we don't want to do your contract now. You know, we're, we want to wait till after the season. And, and evidently, he wasn't willing to wait. And uh, if, if social media were around when you went through this with the Jets, do you think you would have – like, you were an outspoken guy. Look, you, you would say you're fine, for sure, in the newspapers and on TV and radio. But do you think you would have gone to Twitter the way Jamal did just to – you know, stir things up. I'm curious how Keyshawn Johnson would have handled that if you had that platform. Probably not. I'm not a big social media guy as it is now. Mm-hmm. And I never, I mean, I talked to the media, you covered me and I talked to you guys, but I never 
I never gave you anything that, you know, I, you size, people say I was good sound bite, but I never gave you anything. Like, what did you really get from me in terms of my personal life, my personal experiences, what we're doing as far as the game plan goes? I mean, you guys were so fixated on Wayne Corbett and Keyshawn Johnson's relationship. That was really the, the focal point, right? I mean, that was like, well, that oh, was kind we want to find out what that's really all about, opposed to really trying to dive into, you know, what I thought about certain things. Um, and so that was kind of, I don't know, that was just, a, it was a different time in a different era. I, I personally would, wouldn't have never communicated on my contract. And as you know, as a rookie holding out, you didn't get any information on my contract. You guys were running around chickens with your head cut off trying to figure out what the contract was all about. Yeah, and that was a that was a pretty explosive contract. Uh, I mean, that made a lot of headlines, and uh, you know, but you know, you didn't use social media, but you did use you did write a book, you know, yes. after your first season. So that was almost like your your outlet, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> that was almost like you know, two hundred pages of tweets all in there because that was explosive when that book came out. I mean. I got to give you credit. It was a great title of the book, um, and it was it lives so controversial. To this day, Richard. What? How's that? It, live, it lives to this day. People always refer to it. You know, hell, I, I still refer to it when I'm writing stories because it was just such a great title, and you just you just shook it up, like <laughs> like what player who's a who's finishes one year in the NFL writes a book like that. So definitely you shook up you shook up the establishment. But the best part about it all is we got you real good. You thought you had an exclusive. <laughs> Remember that? Yes, oh, I did. God. You know, you, Keisha, you I actually, you know, when I, I teach a class in, at Syracuse, a journalism class, and I bring up that story to my class every year as an example of what not to do, you know, because I, that was like, I had, a, as for the fans listening, I had a copy of the book that honestly, I don't even know how I got it. Some intern at the book company emailed me. So you, did, I, you, you got it because you did your job. Well, I did my job. It came FedEx the next morning, but instead of just writing about it in the newspaper, I had to go around and try to get people to talk about it, which I shouldn't have done. And so word got out pretty quickly that I had a copy of it. And the next thing I know, Keyshawn and his agent released excerpts of the book to every member of the media, ruining my exclusive. <laughs> oh, we I'm laugh telling. at that. We laugh at that. We say, you know, we laugh at that. We laugh at that so much because you called us and wanted to know if the quotes were real and this and that and the other. And we were like, you don't have a copy of the book. Tell us something. Yeah. Page such and such and such. And we were like, oh, shit, he does have a copy of the bill. And, yeah, um, I did. It was but the I funniest, it, I mean, copy, copy of the book. And the funniest thing was, Jerome kept saying he has a copy of the book. So I said to Jerome, I said, you know what we ought to do? He's claiming he's going to run an exclusive, exclusive my ass. We should just give it to everybody. And that way, when he wakes up the news day, the next day, or daily news the next day, everybody will have an exclusive and he won't get the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I made a rookie mistake, man. And uh, it, it, it is one of my biggest blunders of my career because I had a clean hit. That would have been a major exclusive. And so I'm serious. I do tell my students every year about that, like what not to do. And um, But 
I mean, that was a pretty amazing book in its own right, because you just you just didn't hold back on anyone. You just unloaded on pretty well, much Well, you know, the thing about it, Rich, is it wasn't as wild as it. the media wanted it to turn. You know, they turned it out to be that. It was a chronicle of my rookie season and the truth about what we went through as a rookie. Now, if we won, and I tell people all the time, I said, man, if we won 101 games, I would write about the 101 games that we won. But guess what? We didn't win 101 games. You know, we just didn't. Yeah. We didn't win. We were bad. So I had to write about us being bad. You did. Without a filter. You know, it was just <laughs> – it was unfiltered. You know, it, it, it was really uh, – how did Parcells react to that? He didn't care. He cared. He would have nothing to do with me writing the book. He could care less. Only thing he did was laugh about it and said, boy, you had a lot of – you know, I forgot what he called him, but a lot of sacks. You know, <laughs> he, he basically, that's all he said. He said, man, you had, you had it. And he didn't care because he had nothing to do with it. He wasn't the coach. Yeah. He had, it didn't go under his watch. Right. No, that was, uh, it was pretty, a pretty amazing time. Uh, let, let's talk about the current Jets. Um, not a lot of expectations around the country for these guys. Uh, what is your thought? Do you think they have a chance to do anything this year? Um, you know, I like Sam Darnold. I'm a little, I'm a little bullish on Adam Gates because I don't really know what he is as a coach. Mm-hmm. I know he likes to talk a lot. I know he, you know, ruffles feathers with players, but I don't really get him or the hire, so to speak. Um, you know, Miami hired him because he was supposed to be this great coach that had Jay Cutler and turned his career around and all this all this interesting stuff. And he gets a second bite at the apple when the first apple didn't turn out so good. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, there was no promise there. This wasn't Bill Belichick. He right. wasn't winning he wasn't winning Super Bowls as an offensive coordinator where you could figure Belichick gets a second bite at the apple in New England, but he was always going to get a second bite at the apple because he was a good coach. Mm-hmm. So when you look at Adam Gates, you kind of go, I don't know. You know, the offensive line, they went and got the big tackle, Beckham from Louisville. Yeah. Uh, they drafted the receiver from Baylor Mims. But, you know, is that enough? Like, Le'Veon Bell, you, you're picking fights with probably your best offensive playmaker – And you don't know how to utilize him the way he should be utilized. You you should figure out how to use him, not try and figure out how he fits in your scheme. Uh, It reminds me, it reminds me of Les Steckle that I had in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay paid me a bunch of money my first year to go down there, and Les Steckle told me to jump on a grenade for the team. And I told Les Steckle, I said, "You realize they just gave me sixty-seven million dollars, and you want me to jump on a grenade for the team?" Like, what are you talking about? Well, I don't design. I've had everybody from Michael Westbrook in college to my guys in Tennessee, and I don't design specific plays for individuals. You know, what comes, comes. I, I said, you know what? <laughs> He's not going to be here much longer with me. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. And, and so that's – so when I look at that situation with, with Le'Veon, it's like figure out how to get him. You know he's a patient runner. Design things that fit his abilities. You know, don't don't try to alienate the guy. Right. And so, you know, I'm on the outside looking in, and that's all I see. 
Yeah. And I thought they underutilized him as a receiver too, because you know he's a really good pass catcher. And uh, he really is. He he yeah. really is. He's a hell of a back. Yeah. Well, Gates is talking this year about how they're going to do this and do that, and you know, utilize Le'Veon and everything. So we'll see. I mean, it's I think a lot of Jet fans feel the way you do. You know about Gates. You know they just have some serious questions about him. Um, you're you're you like Sam though. I mean that's not your USC bias talking. You you really looking at it objectively. You like his potential. Absolutely, um, but he has to have. When you have a young quarterback, see one of the things that I would that I liked about what Cleveland did is they went out and hired Kevin Stefanski, who took over play calling duties in Minnesota, and he massaged that offense to where it was effective. Delvin Cook, Stephon Diggs, Thielen, Rudolph. And they made that offense something that was complimentary of the defense. So Cleveland goes and hires him for a young quarterback with some talent, running back Chubb and, and, and uh, uh, Kareem Hunt, Landry at the receiver, OBJ. You got some pieces in place. You hire a guy for a young quarterback that shows you that he can coach a quarterback like a Kirk Cousins to do some things well and not try to put everything on Kirk Cousins' shoulders. Mm -hmm. Where I feel like Adam Gase kind of gets this caught up in the, the Peyton Manning uh, should sign off on him and get caught up in that when you hiring guys. Oh, Peyton Manning loves him. Or, or you know, and it's like, oh, come on, man. Like, really? Oh, Jay Cutler just dies for him. I'm like, these dudes could play the position with any quarterback coach because they're good. Right. And so when you look at that, it's like Peyton Manning was good before anybody even thought about it. Or Jay Cutler was a, a pretty good quarterback. He just had, you know, some issues dealing with people, you look at that and you go, has he ever taken a young quarterback and molded him to the point where this guy is just ridiculous or taken a veteran guy and took his game to the next level? I haven't seen it. No, he hasn't done that. I mean, and he, he admits he's never had a young quarterback. The only young quarterback he ever had was Tebow in, in Denver, and I don't know if we could even count him as, you know – a pure quarterback. So you're right. He, this is his first like, uh, like blob of clay that he's had a chance to mold, you know, in Sam Darnold. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of questions there about uh, how he can influence Sam and, but second year in the system, you would have to expect some improvements this year. No. I mean, yeah, I do. I, I do expect some improvements, but it's all about the play caller, man. Yeah. It's all about the play caller. Think about yeah. it. You've covering. You've been covering this game for a long time. And if you got a bad play caller and a bad communicator, your team is going to be bad. Yeah. Players pick up on that pretty quickly, right? I mean, when you're a head coach, if, if he's a bad communicator, I mean, it's hard to BS players. They're going to pick up on it, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic because I think the players really like Greg Williams because he's such a commanding presence and a fiery guy. And yep. 
You know, I mean, you look at that team. Do you see like two head coaches there? You know, it's kind of a weird dynamic. It's like Adam doesn't do anything with the defense. It's all, you know, it's like they have their separate, you know, it's like a line down the middle. Well, that's the, that, that, that could work. The problem is your offense got to be able to do something. If your offense can't do anything, then it's not going to matter. You're going to be one-sided. Right. The offense has got to be able to be good. Yeah. You're, you're not overly optimistic about the Jets' chances this year. It sounds like um, – If you're asking me if they're going to the playoffs, no. If you're asking me if they're winning the division, no. The division comes down to New England and Buffalo, period. Mm-hmm. How many wins do you see for the Jets? Six, seven. Yeah. I predicted them six and ten. So, uh, yeah, I think they got some rebuilding on offense to do. It's a new offensive line. That's going to take some time. The receivers are just getting into practice right now, basically, because they've been hurt all summer. So, uh, you know, they got to – Do you like Joe Douglas? Yeah, I think he's done a good job so far. I mean, it's it's really early. Uh, like you said, the Jamal trade is the biggest move he's made, and we won't know for sure until we see how those picks pan out. So I think he's got a good long-term plan, but, uh, you know, we'll see. We've said that about other GMs, too, and things things in New York just have a tendency to go sideways, you know? They keep hiring the wrong people. Yeah, I, I think Joe has potential. He's a football guy. Uh, but, you know, sometimes things, even even football guys have trouble too, you know. So, you know, New York is a weird place sometimes. <laughs> As you know, it can, get, uh, it can get a little crazy, but um, you know that very well. Well, they had, you know, when they, 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 they you hire John Itzik, I mean, like, Jesus, stop listening to people in the NFL on your hires. And Joe Douglas may be the right guy, but I've learned that these owners rely on some of these old heads around the NFL to make decisions on who to hire. Oh, you should hire this guy. He's going to be excellent. No, you should hire who you feel is going to be excellent. You should interview certain people. You shouldn't just hire because Charlie Cassidy tells you this guy's an up-and-comer. Like, you you shouldn't do stuff like that. Well, you just hit – I mean, Itzik was a terrible hire. I mean, that was, I mean, they fired him after two years, you know, which is pretty unusual for a GM. And, uh, you know, Mike McCagnan, who was endorsed by Charlie McCasserly, you know, he did a poor job, you know, in, in four years. So that that's where they're at right now. It's just a massive rebuilding. They have so far to go. You know, the talent is so low on this team, and it's going to take Joe Douglas, uh, you know, a few years to get this going. So, Hopefully they get it turned around. Yeah, let's hope. I mean, I haven't covered a good Jet team since 2010. <laughs> so uh, it's always fun to cover a winner. But, uh, Keyshawn, really, I, I really appreciate you stopping in and, and joining the uh, podcast for the first week of the season. Uh, you enjoying the radio gig? I mean, you got to get up really early. What time are you getting up every day? Uh, 3.30. Oh, my. Oh, my. 3.30 a.m. out of the house by 4.15. Wow. Well, for anyone actually, who's, who's a sports actually, fan. Uh, going back to studio tonight for NFL Live. So I take my nap, I wake up, I go back into the studio for NFL Live at 4 o'clock. 
Well, any any sports fans out there should definitely give a listen to Keyshawn, to Jay, Will, and Zubin in the morning. Uh, it's a really good listen about all sports. And if you know Keyshawn like I know him, he's not going to hold back. He just tells you what he thinks. And uh, he's been in the league, so, you know, he's it's coming from a good place. And so it's a really good listen. You guys should check it out. And Keyshawn, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed taking a little trip down memory lane. And, and thanks for your uh, insights on the current Jets. Anytime, you know that, Rich. Anytime, just give me a call. All righty. Take care. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Now it's time for the Twitter mailbag. And I appreciate the support on social media. Got a whole bunch of great questions here. We're going to start out with at Matt Romano 19. Have the Jets made any plans to fill the void of the fans at the stadium, such as cardboard cutouts, virtual fans? Will they use a feed from the Jumbotron to keep the energy up? So next week, they'll have their home opener against San Francisco. And no, they're not planning to do cardboard cutouts. And the reason I'm told is because, and this is a little weird, but, you know, the Giants, you know, if they did the same thing, or even if they didn't, they would have to remove uh, the fan, the cardboard cutouts, depending on which team was at home. I guess they don't want to have generic fans in the stands, which strikes me a little odd, but that is something they're not planning. I don't think they'll have virtual fans. I think you will see the JETS chant. The league is allowing teams to have traditional chants and traditional spectacles in stadiums, so I think that's something you'll see. And In terms of the Jumbotron and the energy, they're definitely going to use the Jumbotron. But one thing they have to be mindful of is the de- the league is putting limits on the decibel level. So you can't just crank up the, the sound when the other team's on offense. There's going to be very specific regulations that they have to follow. Next question from at MT Palace. What would you say the chances of seeing more 12, 21, and 22 personnel as compared to last year? Now, of course, MT is referring to run heavy packages, packages with two tight ends and two running backs. Uh, yeah, I would like to see that because I said, as I said in the first quarter, I think they have to be uh, coming into the season with a ground and pound mindset just to get this offense going to create an identity. So yes, I do think you'll see some two back with Trevon Wesco as a blocking back. I do think you'll see some two back with Le'Veon and Frank Gore at the same time. And yes, you will see some two tight end with Griffin and Herndon. I think the Jets have a, a lot of stuff on their menu that they can dial up, and they're going to have to be, um, you know, they're going to have to be varied, you know, and try to keep opponents off balance. Next one from at sports underscore fi three nd. Which two players uh, surprised you the most in the preseason, and which two disappointed the most? And uh, sports, I'd say the biggest surprises or the players who impressed the most on defense, Marcus May. He looked like he was ready for a bust-out year playing that Jamal Adams role as the strong safety. And on offense, I really liked Chris Herndon. It's funny because they won against each other a lot in one-on-one drills and in team drills. But Chris Herndon looks to me like a guy who's just pissed off that he missed last season and is eager to prove a point this year. Uh, the disappointments, you know, Quinn and Williams came in talking a big game. I did not see it on the practice field. That doesn't mean it, you know, it won't happen in games. 
but uh, I was a little disappointed. And then Brashad Perryman, and some of that is due to his knee injury, but uh, didn't see a whole lot from him this summer when he was out there as well. Next one from Ad Gorbs. Do you think Perryman is a long-term answer at wide receiver, and do you think they'll draft another receiver? Glad to see the pod back, Rich. Well, thank you, Gorbs. Uh, No, I do not see Brashad Perryman as a long-term answer. He signed a one-year contract. I think this will be one and done for him. I think Joe Douglas likes him because he was on the Baltimore staff that drafted him a few years ago. But uh, I see him as a one-trick pony, and I, I, I don't think he's going to replace Robbie Anderson's production. And yes, I do think they will draft a receiver fairly high next year. Don't forget, two first-round picks next year. Next one from at J underscore Merck 23. Are we getting Hakeem Butler or what? I can't believe how much, you know, groundswell there is on social media for the Jets to get Hakeem Butler, who was a wide receiver who was drafted in the fourth round by Arizona, and he got cut. And here's a little info. The Jets did have him in for a workout on Monday, so possibly maybe added to the practice squad. They have an opening on the practice squad. They have an opening on the regular roster, but they won't do that because he doesn't know the offense. But So I do think there's some interest there, obviously, that they brought him in for a workout. And our last question from at Wuhan3. Hey, Rich, I know you wrote it last week about the long-term plan, but isn't it obvious they've punted on 2020? If they go 4-12 and with no growth from Darnold, how would they approach his fifth-year option? Fascinating question. If they go 4-12 and and Sam does not get better, I do not see them picking up his fifth-year option because that fifth-year option, not for next year but the year after, would have to be picked up in May of 2021. So you're basing it on this year's performance. And if he doesn't get better, I don't think they'll pick it up because there's a new rule in the CBA. That fifth-year option is fully guaranteed from the get-go. So you're talking about $25 million for a quarterback. That is an enormous guarantee if you have questions about a player. So that's why this is a big season for Sam Darnold. If he shows the progress, then it's great. His future is bright. But if he, if he stagnates or goes backward, then the Jets are going to have to make that tough decision. And I don't think they'd pick up that 50-year option for 2022. That's the end of the third quarter. And welcome to the fourth quarter. And for those listening to Flight Deck for the first time, fourth quarter is when I share some personal experiences on the Jets beat, what it's like covering the team, some some funny stories from the past, and uh, just kind of a lighter thing. And so I, I think I should probably talk about the Jamal Adams trade. It was such a big story at the beginning of training camp. And a couple of unusual things happened behind the scenes about how I covered this story that I think you might find somewhat entertaining. So we all know in mid-June, Jamal uh, formally requested a trade, and I broke that story from a golf course. Uh, Earlier that day, I had written a story about something that Jamal said on Instagram about possibly wanting out and being unhappy and wrote a story about that and then went off to play golf with my son and a couple of friends. And as I was paying my greens fee, I got a call from a very good source who said that uh, something was going down and to stay close to a phone that he might have some information for me. And I said, sure, I got my phone with me. And sure enough, 
second hole right after a drive, actually a pretty good drive for me. And I was getting ready for my approach shot. And uh, the person calls back again and says, you can go with that story. It's a, you know, Jamal is requesting a trade. Um, so he wants out. So I typed up a couple of paragraphs, sent it into my news desk at ESPN and, uh, they put out the story quickly and I tweeted out the information and within seconds, the person in the other cart was receiving alerts like bleacher report alerts, ESPN alerts that uh, Jamal Adams had officially requested a trade and uh, proceeded to go on with the rest of my round, interrupting a couple of times for some sports center hits. But uh, yeah, so I broke that story from a golf course, which, you know, doesn't happen every day. And then when the trade, a week before the trade happens, um, in my backyard, I'm on vacation, technically, and I get a text from a, a different person, another good source, who said, I hear Jamal's getting traded. You might want to check that out. I heard from a player, from another player who knows his agent, who says Jamal's getting traded. And so, you know, I was on vacation, so I was kind of laying low. You know, I texted one person and they said, nah, I haven't heard anything about it. And I kind of let it go. And really, I shouldn't have, because at that point, the Jets were well on their way. They were deep into talks with Seattle. And, uh, you know, I should have pursued it a little bit harder at that point, no one thought Jamal was getting traded. They thought he was probably going to come to training camp. So, you know, that one, uh, that one's on me. But uh, being on vacation, I probably half, you know, I didn't go after it too hard. And then a week later, of course, I'm in my backyard. I'm literally in the swimming pool when the phone uh, phone rings. My son said someone from such and such is calling. I jumped out of the pool and... Uh, it was a phone call, you know, tipping me off on the trade. And sure enough, it happened very quickly. And I was tweeting as uh, as I was soaked and toweling off getting out of the pool, which really just shows that this business is 24-7 now. And in the world we live in now, everything is done remotely, even more than ever. And uh, it could be on a golf course or at a swimming pool. News happens and we have to react to it very quickly. And so that's the backstory on the Jamal trade. And of course, it became a huge story for, for several days. And would really, it really will be one of the narratives surrounding the Jets for the rest of the season because he was such, a, uh, such an outspoken player, such a good player. And I thought it was a good trade that the Jets did the best they could under the circumstances. But we'll find out. It's going to take a few years before we can write the final conclusion on that trade. But it'll be something we'll be talking about, I'm sure, for a long time. And so that's the end of this week's Flight Deck podcast. Week one, Jets at Buffalo. I am excited to get it going. It's a season like no other. And hopefully the Jets keep this interesting. I think they will. So uh, thanks for tuning in. And just uh, if you want to get the Flight Deck podcast, please subscribe. You can get it on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you find your podcasts. And, of course, on any of the ESPN platforms. I want to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin. And, of course, our week one guest, ex-Jet, current broadcaster, Keyshawn Johnson. Love the interview. Very, very entertaining. Thanks to Keyshawn. And join us again next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.